You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome everybody, good morning to those of us here in London and uh, good morning, good afternoon to those of us online. Um, Welcome to the event, um, Ending the Rohingya Crisis, What Will It Take? Um, Just a few notes before we get get going. Um, We are gonna have a bit of a discussion here with panelists here in London and also online and then turn the Q&A over to you. there is an event hashtag for this. Uh, this is a public event, so please feel free to tweet. The hashtag is Rohingya Crisis, uh, hashtag Rohingya Crisis. But please um, turn your phones to silent so that we don't get an interruption during the, um, hmm. during the, the meeting itself. Um, also, just to be aware that we've got three panelists online today, um, many of them um, in country, working on the response itself. So I'm very grateful to them to have taken some time out to speak to us today. But what that does mean is we may experience some technical difficulties during the actual event. I just ask all of you to be patient with us as we try to resolve those as best as we can. So let's get started. Maybe just as a bit of background, but I don't think for this audience it needs a lot of introduction. You know, we've seen 430,000 Rohingya um, fleeing um, uh, into Bangladesh in the last few weeks um, in a new wave of violence that marks uh, a major escalation in this conflict. Um, The UN has recently acknowledged this as a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. Yesterday, the High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grande, called this the worst refugee crisis or the most urgent refugee crisis of our time. Um, But I think we feel that these labels, while helpful, I mean, the rhetoric is now starting to be there, but they won't do anything until they actually spark concerted action by um, the governments in Myanmar and the surrounding countries and by the international community in general. Um, You know, and, and I think we ha- it's, it's safe to say that this is not a new situation um, for the Rohingya. Um, the Rohingya are described as some of the most persecuted people in the world. They've been living essentially stateless um, in Myanmar. And over, during the course of years and decades, they fled to seek asylum in Bangladesh, in India, in Thailand, and in Malaysia. Um, but these neighboring countries are reluctant hosts um, and not necessarily offering the type of assistance and protection that they need. The international community has somewhat turned a blind eye to what's happening to the Rohingya in these countries. Um, And just a bit of a plug here, in fact, we did a report on this. Um, HPT has done a report last year on the Rohingya in Malaysia, um, documenting exactly what's happening to them um, as uh, asylum seekers in Malaysia. And what our research found is that actually, you know, the state, state policies in Malaysia are actually limiting their ability to get assistance and protection from both the government and the aid community. And I think we're starting to see some signs of this happening in Bangladesh as well. Bangladesh may be going down the same route. So what can we do to ensure that this doesn't happen? Um, so. Today, you know, what I'd like to do is, um, you know, we've assembled a very expert panel of people who have recently been in Bangladesh, in Myanmar, who are there now, who are responding to the crisis. And I'd like everybody here to get a flavor of what the situation looks like on the ground. We've been hearing lots about fake news from both sides. You know, what does that look like from sort of an eyewitness account? You know, what are the immediate needs? But also, what in the longer term do do we need to do to ensure that this kind of neglect doesn't happen in the future? 
Um, so before getting started in our discussion, I'd like to introduce our panelists. Um, here in London, we have Dennis McNamara, who is a senior humanitarian advisor for the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue in Geneva. Prior to that, Dennis has held uh, has worked for more than three decades in international humanitarian assistance and held many senior positions across the United Nations and including at UNHCR. Um, online today we have Dirk Hebecker, who is the Senior Coordinator for Bangladesh Refugee Emergency at UNHCR. He's also the UNHCR representative in Japan and I think he's now been deployed to Bangladesh to, to deal with the emergency. Um, also online today we have Lilian Fan, who is the international director and co-founder of the Gutaino uh, Foundation, which in Aceh language means all of us. Is that correct, Lilian? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's a humanitarian organization based in Aceh, Indonesia. Um, she's also the deputy chair of the Asia-Pacific Asia Refugee Rights Network. Lilian is also an HPG research associate and a former staff member here. So good to see you again, Lilian. Um, and finally, we have uh, Rone San Luin, who is a Rohingya human, human rights activist and blogger. Um, he was born in the Rakhine state and raised in Rangoon, also known as Yangon, um, and has been documenting cases of human <coughs> rights violations in Arkan state of Myanmar. So he will be with us. He's speaking to us from sort of the diaspora community of the Rohingya. Um, okay, so just to get started, maybe I'll first turn to Dennis. Dennis, you've just returned from Bangladesh, where the Bangladeshi government has been criticized for not doing enough um, for the Rohingya, the, the hundreds of thousands of, the, the, of Rohingya that have been coming across the border. Um, and is that a fair statement, given that the government is really overwhelmed with looks like a very chaotic situation on the ground? You know, what, give us a picture. What does it look like? What did you see? Um, what is actually happening in terms of assistance and what more needs to happen? Okay. Thank you very much, Christina. First, could I say uh, I work with the Humanitarian Dialogue Center in Geneva, but I'd like to speak in my personal capacity, um, which means I can speak more frankly. So if there's any press here, please respect that. Um, I've just been to Dhaka, to Kuala Lumpur, to Bangkok, and before that to Yangon. Uh, we are preoccupied in the HD Center with this because we spent the last five years in a very discreet dialogue with Myanmar, Bangladesh, Thailand, Malaysia, and Indonesia, trying to see if there were the sort of things you talked about, alternative approaches to this endless humanitarian scenario. I first went to Sitwe in the 1980s with UNHCR on the second wave of exodus and return. So it's decades old, and tragically, it's now taken on new dimensions. The, the army, the ASA armed group attacks in the last months is a new development. There's been a RSO armed wing in the past, which has not been effective, but this is a different level, and that's prompted this crisis. <clears throat> this is the biggest exodus uh, historically for the ring. It's also, in my experience, the biggest exodus in Southeast Asia since the Indochina crisis, which we, many of us worked on. Uh, 400,000 people in, in three weeks is a massive influx. Could I just give a couple of figures, Christina, maybe sure. to put it in context? Yeah. The latest figures we have, and these are from various sources, but I think credible, 436,000 arrivals since 25 August. In the first nine days, interestingly, interestingly 9,000 a day were crossing to Bangladesh, roughly. These figures are, are approximate. No one's registering de in detail. In, th in the next nine days, the, the, ex the exodus rate was 33,000 a day into Bangladesh. 
until the, 20, until the 11th of September. In the last eight days, it's gone down to 6,500 a day. That's still a massive influx, but it's uh, relatively smaller than it was at its peak. However, at the same time, there's continued to be burning villages in northern Rakhine State, as of yesterday. We think from all reports, probably burning uh, vacu uh, uh, vacant villages to destroy any possibility of, of return. Just one other quick figure, if I may. Mong, Mong Dao, <clears throat> in the north of Rakhine State, you see on the map there, the most severely hit, the, the major center for the attacks and the major center for the response. There used to be 500,000 or thereabouts Rohingya. There's been no census, so these are best guesstimates. In Mongdao, there's probably less than 100,000 left today. And I think uh, Human Rights Watch reports 214 villages destroyed. So probably 400,000 or most of them have come from Mongdao. That's been the key epicenter of this crisis inside Rakhine State. But as you know, there is no international presence there able to move and to monitor. So all of the reports are from local sources or speculative or from satellite images or from uh, reports of, of new arrivals. The second town to get hit, Ratidong, you'll see there down further to the east, about 55,000, a third of that population were Rohingya, uh, and we think most of them have now also uh, been forced out from Ratidong. And the third one is Butidong, further down, the most peaceful of all the Rohingya settlements. Some 300,000, we think, initially, and probably 45,000 have left from there. The last point on this, sorry, just to put it in context, the last concern is that this scorched earth policy by whomever, and I, uh, don't ask me to get into that bit, uh, the fear is it might spread to central Rakhine which has been a separate Rohingya entity to some extent from the northern Rakhine. That hasn't happened yet, but uh, I think the speculation is if there are further Asa attacks, which many experts expect to happen, why wouldn't there be? Then it may well be that this, uh, this uh, response, this very harsh, brutal response, will spread, spread further. That's important because the present focus is on the, as you see, the northwestern corner which is adjacent to Bangladesh. That's why people have been going across the Naf River and sometimes walking up around the top of the Naf River. If you go down to, to Butidong, for example, that's away from Bangladesh. If people leave from there, they'd leave in boats south normally to Malaysia. That stopped since 2015 because of the trafficking, uh, trafficking uh, uh, patrols, because of the crackdown on the boat organizers, because of the lack of boats, because Bangladesh stopped them, etc., etc. But that's a scenario we, we certainly can't rule out. Shall I say a word about the conditions in Bangladesh? Yes, please. Awful. Horrendous. Cox's Bar is a disaster. Uh, Cox's Bazaar is a disaster zone. I've talked to colleagues and friends who've come back just this week from total chaos with the new arrivals. The UN agencies have not been present on the ground enough. The NGOs such as MSF and AICF and SAVE have been doing a brilliant job, apparently. Totally overwhelmed. The local charitable response has been ad hoc, unmanaged, and in some cases has been so unprofessional that it's led to clashes between the recipients, desperate to grab the, 
things thrown off the back of a truck, for example. Um, there has been no internationally coordinated response one month after the crisis broke. That's complicated reasons for that. Bangladesh government is also hesitant about how much aid should be given to this area, which is an opposition area. It's hesitant about UNHCR's role because of its protection concerns. But nevertheless, uh, I think everyone who's been there is horrified by the conditions in Coxham. I talked to one colleague who had worked in Somalia and Sudan. She said, I've never seen women and children in such bad conditions as in Coxham's are today. And you've probably seen some of the footage. The stories also not yet coming out from human rights and others uh, will confirm uh, massive sexual violence and abuse, almost certainly, and horror stories from children, traumatized children, in some cases too traumatized to speak from what they've witnessed uh, in their villages. So an awful situation. Uh, the government of Bangladesh has kept the borders open. That's positive. They're trying to coordinate the system with the UN and others. Um, there's a lot of local empathy for the Rohingyas in the Cox Bazaar area, but it is a politically sensitive area. And you've probably seen plans talked about for the military to relocate the populations. We'll see. We'll see, but it's been discussed. Just quickly, KL, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, the one country in the region which said we will receive them all, we will receive the boats. Malaysia has split completely within ASEAN on the soft line, as they called it, of the ASEAN meeting, refused to endorse an ASEAN statement, have called for the expulsion of uh, Myanmar from ASEAN, and have made very strong accusations about what has happened. There is a big divide as a result, no consensus within ASEAN. Last general point, Christina, Thailand, unfortunately, under the Prime Minister's guidance, has announced a push-off policy will be reinstated for all boat arrivals. And those who are not pushed off will be detained in detention centres, as they did previously. And they told us on Friday, but we'll separate the children. We said, well, that's, what does that mean? Well, we won't put them in detention, but you know, what do you do with the traumatised children of detained parents is, a, is another question. And uh, uh, we urged them to really uh, try and reconsider that policy because it would cause huge problems also with Malaysia who will resist that. So that's the sort of snapshot of, uh, of where we are. Just a final final is you've probably followed New York uh, discussions. The UN Security Council is not going to make any decision on this because China has made it clear they will support uh, Myanmar completely. India has also supported, they're not in the council, but they've also supported Myanmar's position, the two major ones we have. So there'll be no Security Council action on it. I guess, but I haven't followed it closely, there may be a General Assembly resolution with the Organization of Islamic Countries, OIC, 57 members, biggest bloc in the General Assembly of the UN. We'll probably put through something on, on that, uh, but we'll wait and see. And the other thing that's continuing, as you know probably now, the UN fact-finding mission, high-level mission approved by the Human Rights Council, has started work in the region. It hasn't reported, and unfortunately it won't report formally until next year to the Council, formally. Parallel to that, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights has also launched his own investigation. And that will be something which will be quicker and practical. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis, for that, for that overview. Maybe just a couple of follow-up questions for you. You've mentioned you know, complete chaos in, in Cox Bazaar um, and a range of problems um, from sexual violence to things falling off the back of trucks and swarms of people trying to get to them um, to you know, potential separation of families and things like that. 
what should the aid community be focusing on now? It's a, a big coordinated international effort. I think the Secretary General, who's been very active, Guterres in New York on this, should, should pull the agencies together under a high-level humanitarian coordinator. There's no humanitarian coordinator for Bangladesh, tragically. There's no overall senior management of the operation. It needs that. It needs a consolidated appeal, which I think has just come out for 200 million, isn't it, for six months? Four weeks later, but it's come. And it needs major donor backing to the Secretary General of the UN to make the inroads they need to make. They're not allowed into Northern Rakhine State. They've, UNHCR has been kept out of the new arrivals. That's an issue surely the donor governments should be concerned about. But I must say, there's been a stunning silence from Western leadership on this, this sort of issue. The only one I've seen, but please correct me if I've missed some, is Prime Minister Trudeau, who wrote a very strong letter, public letter, on Mangda. I don't think any other Western leader has gone on the record as far as we have seen it. We've got the Dalai Lama and Malala, uh, and uh, um, who was the other one? Uh, huh? Tutu, yes, and... and um, the Bangladeshi, um, thank you. <laughs> those, are the, those are the voices. Where's the high moral authority of Western Europe, for example? US, okay, we understand it's not going to happen, but certainly Europe surely could join with Canada. And, 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 and that, that's, that's important, Christine, if you're going to get movement on the UN, as you know. The UN responds to governments and donors. And if they don't have that pressure, it may not move. Okay, thank you. Um, Dirk, can I, if I can turn to you. Um, you know, what, the, what Dennis is saying is the international aid community, too little, too late, not there, not coordinated. Um, it took until yesterday for your high commissioner to say something, um, you know, strong and very publicly about the situation. What, what's, what's been taking so long? What, what is the situation for UNHCR? What does your access look like? Um, what are your operations on the ground, and why have why is there this impression that you've been absent from the crisis thus far? That we have been absent from the crisis. There's a perception that there's a, a it's a little bit it's too little too late at this point, and the crisis has been going on for weeks, yes. but that the UN agencies have been largely silent and largely absent from the situation on the ground. Um, that's the perception um, that we're getting here, uh, but you're there um, and you're coordinating this. So um, explain what, what it looks like to you, what your dealings with the government of Bangladesh have been, what your access is like, um, and how you intend to move forward. Okay. How much time do you give me? Um, <laughs> yeah, 30 seconds. Um, you know, take some time, five, five minutes. Try to prepare for a T sign if you if you don't um, see me stopping if you don't uh, get a sense that I'm coming to an end of my um, answer to your questions. Well, um, and forgive me, I'm looking in different directions here because I'm still also coordinating a very complex response. I've asked for some. Uh, closed door for a little while, but uh, there are disruptions. Uh, UNHCI has very much been present here from the very beginning. Uh, in fact, um, this current exodus uh, that has uh, finally 
actually had one positive impact of all the negativity and uh, the suffering, etc. And that is a uh, uh, very uh, good international attention. Uh, it is tragic that it had to come to this uh, first, but now we feel that uh, even major uh, news channels, uh, newspapers uh, have been keeping this issue on, on the uh, front uh, pages and, and in the first minute of um, evening news uh, for uh, quite some time since this um, uh, crisis erupted. But there's a history to this. Um, long years of um, a kind of status quo where uh, after the uh, outflux of 250,000 people in, two th uh, in 1991-92, where UNHCR was very much in the lead and uh, cooperating with the government of Bangladesh to provide a response at that time, but then also to very quickly engage with Myanmar uh, to come to a um, a repatriation agreement, uh, UNHCR then facilitating the return of some 230,000 out of 250,000 uh, at that time, leaving a, um, a small number, maybe 15, 18,000 at the time, residual caseload that were not ready to repatriate, which grew um, by population growth and, and maybe uh, with a few arrivals. Um, uh, between 1995, let's say, and 2010, to some 30,000 uh, people. They were consolidated in two camps at the time, Nayapara and Kutupalong, south of uh, Cox's Bazar. And uh, UNHCR was working there. Over the years, also, of course, uh, known to those who are in this um, uh, audience, uh, were what the Bangladesh authorities uh, called undocumented migrants or undocumented Muslims from Rakhine State, as some called them Rohingya refugees. UNHCR had a change of terminology over the years, but we kind of um, insisted that they were also refugees uh, for political reasons. We chose to call them Myanmar um, uh, Muslims from Rakhine State in a refugee-like situation. Uh, to whom UNHCR, however, was never really given access uh, in the 2000s um, up until uh, 2014, where the government uh, of Bangladesh suddenly decided to uh, give a, an access, but not to UNHCR, but to IOM, the International Organization for Migration. Uh, in 2012, we had uh, the first uh, violence, which was at the time more intercommunal violence because the, between the Rakhine community and, and the Muslims uh, slash Rohingya uh, that uh, caused uh, displacement chiefly inside uh, Myanmar. You know about the IDP camps in and around Sitwe, partly in northern Rakhine state itself. Uh, not so much external displacement because Bangladesh, uh, for example, closed its border. Dennis was just referring to the push-up policy by the Thai Navy, uh, although uh, people were coming into Thailand, but more Malaysia, Indonesia by boat through the Andaman Sea. Uh, estimates, I think, if I'm not uh, mistaken, uh, some 25,000 uh, people in those uh, years. Um, then uh, October 2016, where uh, the, the, the first signs of um, um, 
uh, an armed resistance uh, inside northern Rakhine state uh, caused the army to uh, uh, start its operations. I think initially actually not formally the army, but the, the uh, police guards, uh, border police guards and uh, other uh, armed forces of Myanmar uh, that pushed uh, over a formally closed border into Bangladesh uh, some 70, 90,000 uh, people, estimates vary, and because registration was not carried out, uh, this is not uh, confirmed, who were basically obs absorbed in the uh, registered official camps, um, the makeshift shelters of the undocumented uh, illegal migrants uh, and uh, local host populations. And then uh, we had this latest um, uh, incident on the 25th of August, which caused the displacement of 436,000 uh, people. So if you put all the numbers together, you will arrive at something like 750 to 800,000 people currently being displaced from Rakhine State in Bangladesh alone. Um, and I, I was very grateful for Dennis to explain a little bit the, uh, the, the demography of displacement. Uh, but there are many question marks, I think, uh, as to how many people are still in their home villages or have already fled inside NRS trying to cross uh, uh, those who may be considering uh, to um, uh, take boats uh, or, un or un are on their way to uh, areas where they could embark boats to either come on the southern route to Teknaf, uh, southern tip of uh, Cox's Bazar or uh, to other countries crossing the Andaman Sea. Now, all this, I needed this as a little bit of an introduction to say when this uh, crisis erupted uh, and 400,000 people within three weeks uh, indeed came across, um, UNHCR was very much ready to assume its full uh, role, providing um, all the um, initial relief, uh, including also coordination of relief that was being provided and pledged by many other actors, those who are already in Bangladesh and, and those who were ready to come in after this uh, crisis started. However, UNHCR was told uh, by the government, you stay in the registered camps and continue while IOM will um, uh, organize the relief effort in the um, in the rest of uh, Cox's Bazaar, meaning all the makeshifts and uh, the, the new spontaneous settlements, as well as the uh, refugees in the host communities. Um, that has now changed uh, to a certain extent, although not formally. Um, on the 14th of uh, September, actually, the government issued a decision uh, called uh, the... Uh, rehabilitation of the displaced people from Myanmar and coordination of relief work, which adjusts in a, uh, in a very substantive way uh, how uh, the, the uh, government of Bangladesh wants uh, the support and relief effort to be uh, coordinated and what roles different uh, actors on the ground uh, will play. And this is what was possible to put on paper uh, on the 14th of September, but this is probably just an interim arrangement until uh, proper uh, coordination mechanisms um, are put in place. Uh, there's still a lot of question marks even inside the UN um, regarding coordination mechanisms. Uh, uh, some things have been set up and we are 
supporting that as much as possible, but things are still falling into place. While massive aid is needed on the ground to save lives, etc., I want to say something uh, maybe that uh, will again divert from your original question, where is UNHCR? We are perceived not to be there. The initial relief effort, actually, as much as agencies who were already present were emptying their warehouses to throw in uh, to help uh, to provide uh, help uh, that was already physically uh, uh, there to the most uh, needy uh, people uh, on the ground, it was actually the local population of Bangladesh, the local host population in in a in an already poverty poverty stricken area of Bangladesh and one of the poorest districts of Bangladesh who. Uh, made the biggest difference. Uh, spontaneous uh, um, kitchens were set up to cook for people, hot meals, especially for the children, hand out whatever assistance they could, uh, um, clothing, um, even plastic sheeting. Um, in most situations, you will see a lot of UNHCR plastic sheeting, and there is a lot of that. Uh, but most of the plastic sheeting is the one that was available in the markets and that people were just like uh, buying or donating locally from the resources that the local population had themselves. In some cases, perhaps the refugees themselves. Um, the chaos of the very first uh, 10 days, I think, has now um, started to uh, change into a very initial phase of stabilization where at least some very primitive shelter has been erected for the vast majority of the new arrivals. Uh, many of the new arrivals are still hosted by refugees in the registered camps and in the old makeshift cam camps, but a whole vast area uh, of new makeshift shelters has, um, has been erected um, that uh, for me, as I was accompanying the High Commissioner for Refugees, who was touring the area for, uh, for 24 hours, uh, finishing um, his mission to Bangladesh this morning, uh, I had the honor to accompany him, but also the, the horror of seeing uh, what, was, uh, what the whole situation was looking like on the ground. I was, just as a footnote, um, assigned as the head of UNHCR's sub-office at Cox's Bazaar for two years between 2011 and 13, and I know the area really well, but I was shocked to tears uh, when I saw what had happened in the meantime. Whole forest areas or semi-forested areas around Kutupalong and Nayapara have gone completely and have made uh, way for these makeshift um, uh, shelters. As far as the eye can see, basically, uh, amazing uh, that, uh, that uh, this was even possible and credit goes in, in, in a, a big way to Bangladesh uh, as a um, government and, and um, nation to actually keep its borders open, uh, something that we cannot take for granted from many governments these days. Um, when... Uh, Bangladesh is also always uh, is already so overcrowded, and especially the district of Cox's Bazaar has uh, really uh, shouldered um, a lot of uh, burden in relation to the uh, Rohingya uh, situation for many, many years, if not de decades. What is now going on is a massive relief effort has started and is starting to make a difference. I, I get the T sign, okay. Um, so, very uh, briefly, in a nutshell, shelter, non-food items, what we call co-relief items, health, uh, wash, of course, 
um, uh, vaccination, uh, initial protection um, uh, activities to identify the most vulnerable, um, starting to make sense of how this uh, whole thing should be coordinated on the ground. So in, uh, uh, interagency coordination mechanisms are being beefed up. Other agencies are beefing up. We have sent uh, about 40 people uh, on emergency deployments from our rosters and, and uh, capacities in Geneva uh, and elsewhere. The other agencies are doing the same, WFP, OCHA, um, um, support of coordination, uh, UNICEF, WHO, UNFPA, uh, to name a few, the international NGOs uh, who were already there, those who agreed to come in, are all uh, throwing in what, uh, what is possible. And uh, uh, I think by the day, um, you can pull off the, the sitreps of the daily achievements from the various organizations' websites and soon uh, probably a portal to follow the uh, entire situation and relief effort uh, um, to get more details. But it is really, it has really started massively. The High Commissioner concluded this mission to Bangladesh by saying um, more is needed. We appeal to donors. We need uh, to um, have a sustained uh, relief effort. And we also think, need to think already now about the second phase design uh, where these people will find a more uh, at least medium term uh, but semi-permanent shelter um, and and um, uh, how do we go forward from from here for Thanks. Bangladesh Thanks, to be able to continue to host these people but also uh, to have them at some stage ready for return whenever conducive. Derek, listen, um, just a quick follow-up. Thank you for that, and thank you for painting the picture. That's the sort of relief picture. Um, you know, it does seem like it's taken a bit of time to gear up. Um, I note that you said that, you know, the first response came from local organizations, which is extremely important, and it often does. Um, but maybe just very, very briefly, can you tell us what UNHCR has been doing to support local organizations in that response? And also... Um, what um, what are you doing for the host communities who are opening up their homes um, and providing, you know, on a volunteer basis, uh, that assistance for for um, all of these refugees? Very brief. Well, your first question, in fact, it was probably not so much uh, local organizations. Uh, in the very beginning, it was just local people. Uh, because local organizations also had to organize themselves. Uh, very quickly, you saw then Taka, other parts of Bangladesh, sending relief items. But initially, really, whatever the villagers had uh, around this area, they were throwing in uh, that support to save lives. Um, the very first days, then uh, you gradually saw uh, trucks and, and organizations uh, that were not pre prior to this uh, crisis active in the district, come to the district and bring a lot of relief, which didn't come uh, without problems. UNHCR and IOM on the ground, we tried to uh, organize that a bit to uh, not offload everything uh, at first sight when, when you spotted the first uh, large group of refugees and then dump everything, but to actually systematically uh, achieve some better geographic coverage in the area because it's vast, vast. So I think our, what we did in the beginning, we organized our own supplies from what we had, including 
very close to the delivery point in our warehouses in the registered camps, Kutupalong and Nayapara, but also uh, providing uh, the, the needed guidance and intelligence to those incoming organizations where to go and where we knew no assistance had gone yet to uh, redirect them, etc. Okay, great. Maybe we'll get to host communities a bit There later. was a second question on, host, on our no. support to host communities, what we are planning. Go ahead, quickly. Yeah. Um, we have backed uh, support uh, into our uh, now more consolidated planning uh, for the next six months. Uh, we are almost ready to launch an appeal together with other agencies. Uh, and there's a component that uh, provides uh, uh, assistance to beef up uh, not only infrastructure, but also um, uh, injections, cash injections to recompensate the local uh, host communities uh, for uh, what they've done so that they can replenish their own uh, uh, food supplies, etc., and, and um, stabilize themselves. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, now I'd like to get to, to Nay, who has been sort of viewing this whole situation um, from afar, but very much in touch with people on the ground and other uh, Rohingyas around the world. Um, you know, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has branded this situation a textbook case of ethnic cleansing. Um, and I wanted to know from your perspective, is that what you're hearing from the people that you're speaking to? Is that a fair assessment of what's going on? And are, is using those types of labels helpful or harmful to the situation? Thank you. Thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to speak here today. And I have been speaking with the, most of the victims from the Rakhine State since 2012. And I have listened many uh, horrific stories from them. So this is not just uh, simply happening since uh, 2012, because you know the wall just came to know that you know the communal violence started in 2012, and they are just thinking this violence uh, are continuing uh, continuing since 2012. But this actually happening since 1978. This is the long decade uh, persecution. We have to get the whole picture from the uh, 1978. Actually, the government, uh, the Burmese government and the majority of the Buddhists uh, inside the country are accusing us that we are the illegal immigrant, uh, illegal Bengali immigrant from the Bangladesh. And also there are many propaganda that we are uh, invading the country. So this is the main reason uh, they are expelling this, the whole population from the country, uh, not just simply they are driving out. There are many propaganda against us. And in 19, uh, uh, before the 1978, we all uh, Rohingya were treated as an equal citizen in Burma. But in 1974, the, the government launched the, uh, an operation called Sabay uh, uh, Operation, which is uh, Jasmine Operation. And they have taken away all our national registration card. And they launched the operation in 1978, uh, which called the Dragon King Operation. And they have uh, driven out about 250,000. Again, in 1991, 
250,000 somewhere still remaining in Bangladesh. Again, in 2012, after the violence, uh, about 150,000 fled to Thailand, Malaysia, and the Thai, uh, uh, Indonesia. And again, in uh, last year, 2016, they have driven out about uh, 90,000. In this year, about 440,000. So these all are the pre-planned, you know. Uh, they are like, uh, you know, in the other ethnic area as well we have about the uh, more than 100 uh, ethnic insurgency group so they are not expelling all other ethnic group one they have the clash with the uh, Burmese uh, uh, military troop so now they are taking this as an ex excuse and expelling the whole population the people who remain in the country are also under threat by the Rakhine extremists and the military troop they, every day they are threatening them to flee from the village. So uh, what the UN described is uh, exactly the term they have to use. And also uh, this all, uh, the experts are, experts are saying this is the genocide. And you know, we are, they deny our existence. They deny our identity. They are denying our food. They are denying all our rights. We uh, like, you know, uh, before 1992, all the Rohingya students can join a university like the professional institution, medical, or the engineering, or the law, uh, no problem at all. But in 1992, they start impose the all restriction on us. They, uh, we have no freedom for the education and uh, no freedom for the healthcare and also the freedom of the marriage, freedom of birth, you know, the freedom of movement. Uh, like uh, from one village to another, also uh, we need the uh, special permission from the Belish administration. So all these people were kept in the open air prison and the young people who have no future, they have decided to join the armed group and finally this violence erupted. So the government must respond to the armed group only. They should not respond to the civilian uh, for uh, as of now, since August 25, at least uh, according to our record, because um, I have the uh, network of lo local activists based in Pudirong, Mondo, and Ratirong, and also in Situ. So they are documenting everything there. So according to uh, our record, more than 4,000 Rohingya civilians have been killed since August 25. Uh, men, women, and the uh, children, and also the small baby, they were beheaded uh, and they burned alive, slaughtered, shot dead. And also there are many rape cases, uh, rape, uh, sexual violence against the women and the girls. You know, more, in most cases, they have raped the women and the girl, then they burned them alive. So this is a very horrific you are hearing in this 21st century. Uh, so in my opinion, the UN sh uh, should investigate more and, you know, the, uh, uh, even the, uh, they, they should use the term uh, genocide to, because it is, a, as I am not an expert, I am an, an activist, I can tell, and I cannot tell you exact uh, for the term, but, you know, 
I am just uh, referring according to the expert what they are saying. Uh, you know, in the Queen Mary University also, they have said this is the completely genocide. So they, they should use the, the correct term and to pressure uh, so the world can pressure more to the Burmese government to stop this all atrocity against the Rohingya people. Maybe one quick question for you, Nay. Thank you for that. Um, you know, what have you, you've been talking, you know, you've got a lot of followers, for example, on Twitter and on Facebook, and you're talking to people who are crossing the border um, all the time. What are they saying about what it is that they need most? Those who are leaving, those who have left. Yeah. Uh, they got the short notice, like, you know, one, two hours before. Uh, the military came into military, Boragat police and the Rakhine extremists came into their village and they give them the two options. Either you live from uh, home or uh, you get killed inside the home. So the people flee from the home and, you know, uh, like from Budirong, uh, they need at least 7 to 10 days, sometimes 13 days, sometimes 14 days. So they don't have any food. They, they have just, you know, most of the people, they take their, their solar, solar panel and the mobile phone with them to contact uh, each other, and they don't have any food. They don't have uh, any clothes. They just take, uh, they just try to uh, save their life. From Mondo, it takes about the five days to seven days uh, to reach to the Bangladesh, and also from the Retiro, same like a, like a week they need. And uh, many people trap uh, in the beach and uh, uh, at the hillside inside the mountain for a few days. They, they have no food. Uh, I have posted many videos they have sent me from the mountainside and the uh, hillside from the beach. You know, uh, like uh, I have spoke, uh, with, uh, spoken with many people while uh, they are there. And, you know, the children are crying. They said they don't even, in the beach, there were many thousand, like uh, almost 80,000 people were there from the various places, from three townships. They gathered there and waiting for the boat for uh, many days. But uh, later they were rescued by the Bangladeshi local and also uh, I think some NGO also assisted, uh, assisted them. But, you know, they told me, this, uh, they told me they don't even know exactly how many people die there just be, because uh, they, they don't have the food and they don't have anything to eat, even the water or anything. Yeah, no, thank you, Nay, for that. I mean, I think we're just painting a really horrible picture here um, among all of our panelists of what's, what's happening um, as people are crossing the borders and fleeing. Maybe just turning now to the situation in Myanmar itself, because what we're hearing, you know, what we're hearing from you, Nay, is a, a situation where people who uh, are living there have been stripped of their rights, their state, their statehood, their dignity, um, and are being and whose lives are constantly under threat. Um, there are also reports now of the the government wanting to set up official camps where the villages have been. Um, Lilian, maybe if I could turn to you now um, to, to talk to us a little about this, a little bit about the situation in Myanmar itself. You and your organization has been working with the Rohingya um, there for quite some time, trying to assist them. Um, you know. What have you seen any improvement um, or any movement on the part of the Myanmar government to be able to help these people or to provide them with some level of, uh, of status in that country? Um, and if not, you know, what what do we need to do now to make sure that that happens? Thank you, Christina. 
Um, I think that, uh, you know, the effort of the Myanmar government that's been most significant to try to improve the situation in Rakhine has been the setting up of the Rakhine Advisory Commission that was led by uh, Mr. Kofi Annan and was uh, recently concluded. Um, unfortunately, the submission of his final reports took place exactly um, a day or hours actually uh, um, within the attacks by uh, Arsa on the 25th of um, August and the subsequent crackdown and new clearance operations that started um, by the military in response to that, which have been incredibly brutal and again have closed off access to most aid organizations um, inside uh, northern Rakhine, uh, the uh, areas that have been affected and um, also have made things even more difficult in other areas of Rakhine state as well, where you still have displaced populations and very vulnerable populations um, who've been affected by uh, the 2012 violence um, and, and numerous other um, um, upheavals since then. So I think that uh, in terms of humanitarian access inside, it's, it's extremely difficult right now. There has been, um, over the last few weeks, a negotiation of an arrangement with the ICRC and the Myanmar Red Cross that has been taking shape, although, uh, you know, from what I hear, actually our organization, uh, Gatanio, isn't really on the ground. We actually work more in the region. Um, but we've been hearing, and I, I do a lot of um, work as well inside Myanmar, and what we are hearing is that um, actually the humanitarian access, even for the Red Cross, is actually very difficult. Um, it's not, uh, there isn't really, um, well, there isn't at all free um, and un, un, uh, unhindered access um, suddenly for the ICRC. Even for the Myanmar Red Cross, um, their work is really going through the government and actually most areas in uh, the, the affected um the affected territory ha are not uh, being being reached at all. Um, there is some aid being distributed around the towns, but actually outside the towns, uh, there's very, very limited access uh, for agencies. And a lot of the affected populations, the ones who are fleeing from the violence, the ones who are probably along the journey, you know, towards um, the Bangladeshi uh, border, are actually not being reached by uh, aid uh, at all. So... Um, I think the situation inside right now is extremely difficult, which is why there's also been a lot of effort to try to see if there's another channel of access that can be opened up. And there's been a lot of lobbying around um, alternatives, including seeing what can be done at the level of the um, uh, that what can, the ASEAN member states could actually bring to the table on this, the same way that they did uh, after Cyclone Nargis, which was, of course, a natural disaster, but also similarly a situation where you had a lot of um, antagonism between the Myanmar government and the international community at the time. The anti-international sentiment in Rakhine is extremely high. Um, and uh, this is another reason why it's uh, you know, been proposed actually that ASEAN might be able to play um, a stronger role being um, obviously a regional actor and one that Myanmar is a member state of, uh, that it may actually be more accepted uh, than international organizations. Um, UN, uh, INGOs, and even the Red Cross. Um, there, there were even incidents uh, in which um, Red Cross uh, vehicles as well were, were um, being targeted. So, so it has been extremely difficult. Um, thanks, Lilian. You know, earlier, Dennis was saying that ASEAN hasn't really come up with a coherent position on this yet, um, and that there was a meeting held in New York last week, was it? in order to discuss what its role might be. Um, and, you know, and you're seeing divisions and not unified and unified response. You know, what is uh, the prospect for an organization like ASEAN to really play a major role here? Um, I think I, I have a slightly different interpretation from um, Dennis. I do think, I mean, yes, there are differences and there are divisions, but I think that what is clear is that uh, 
ASEAN does want to play a role, including Malaysia. I, you know, my government as well. I, I'm Malaysian, and uh, we've been talking a lot to the government here. And they are extremely angry with the situation, extremely frustrated, and they understand that aid um, is not enough. And I think that's why they've been extremely um, um, upset with you know, what they want to see is a is political commitment to resolving or somehow getting back on track and looking at how. Um, you know, the recommendations from the Kofi Annan report can actually start to be considered and implemented. Um, and they're not seeing that. So the discussions right now within ASEAN have been mainly around how do we, you know, let's send more aid. And some of it's been bilateral. Um, and then there's been a lot of discussion amongst the foreign ministers to say, well, we need a much more coordinated approach to this. And the Indonesian foreign minister, who's been playing a central um, role in this, um, has actually been uh, doing a lot of work to talk to the other foreign ministers and convince them um, that there was a need to have this uh, foreign ministers meeting on the sidelines of the uh, UN General Assembly in New York last week. When that meeting happened, uh, there were concerns that were raised by many member states, and Malaysia in particular raised its concerns, and Malaysia has been extremely vocal um, actually since uh, last year, since the first... Uh, stage of this military uh, clearance operation started against this new armed group, ARSA. That was in October last year. So since then, Malaysia has become this very vocal player in the region and has gone as far as naming um, the kinds of um, the kind of situation and the kinds of violence, um, you know, that is happening in Rakhine as ethnic cleansing. Um, there's even been discussion, you know, words like genocide are used as well um, uh, in discussions uh, about this crisis. So it has been taking a very critical role, but at the same time, it doesn't mean, and we've heard this from the foreign ministry and directly, in fact, even today, a confirmation that Malaysia's distancing itself from the, um, statement of the chairman of, um, uh, at this, uh, foreign minister's meeting does not indicate an unwillingness to participate in any kind of humanitarian assistance effort that will take place. And I think one of the most significant things that came out of that meeting was actually an agreement by Myanmar to um, allow the AHA Center, this is the ASEAN Coordinating Center for Humanitarian Assistance, to play a role in um, the delivery of uh, humanitarian assistance inside uh, Myanmar, inside Rakhine State. And that's extremely significant. What, of course, needs to be negotiated now is what that really means. You know, what does that mandate look like? Um, does it mean that, uh, you know, everything, uh, AHA is basically coordinating aid sent by the member states to this Red Cross arrangement that's already been established? Or does it actually mean um, that AHA is going to be able to play a role um, in facilitating an ASEAN-coordinated uh, response uh, with the Myanmar government, which would actually be managed and facilitated and coordinated by ASEAN, distributed also with, um, uh, with ASEAN uh, alongside the Myanmar government, which is, I think, actually what a lot of the um, humanitarian agencies would prefer be to ensure impartiality and that aid is actually being distributed um, to populations in need. Thanks. Thanks, Lilian. Um, Nate, listening to what um, Lilian has just said, do you think that ASEAN couldn't, can play an instrumental role in Myanmar for delivering the assistance and the protection that people in Myanmar need and for mobilizing um, or at least getting the government to, uh, to act differently toward uh, the people in Rakhine State? Yeah. <clears throat> Actually, this uh, ASEAN has the non-interference policy, these are buying everything, you know, like uh, Malaysia is uh, playing the role since last year, they have changed uh, their policy uh, according to their statement. But like, you know, there are the largest Muslim country uh, like Indonesia, uh, they are always trying to negotiate with the 
government, uh, with the Burmese government, like they are trying to change the situation as a humanitarian crisis. This is not the actually, yes, there is the humanitarian crisis, but you know, as uh, Liliana uh, told us, you know, there should be the political commitment. They, this, this, the whole situation can be changed if the Burmese government is willing to change their national policy. Because uh, this is not simply happening time to time. They have the very long-term plan to expel all the Rohingya population from the country. So all this, all the ASEAN countries, they have to understand that this uh, Burmese government is trying to expel the whole population from the country by any means, you know. So they cannot just simply send the humanitarian aid and the, you know they settle the things. There is the the most important is to restore the this citizenship right of the Rohingya people and the ethnic right to restore because we have uh, got all the right since before uh, after the independence of Burma. So they they have to. This all, all the ASEAN country because this is the regional threat as well because uh, from the uh, Rakhine state many people fled to uh, uh, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, and also to the Australia. Uh, so this is a regional problem they have to solve for the uh, you know not to face again. But you know this is happening again and again. And you know, uh, uh, in, in a few months later, the uh, the people in Bangladesh they will they will start looking for the boat and they will try to flee to uh, Thailand or uh, Malaysia. So all the ASEAN country they, they they must solve this problem to stop. Uh, the most important is to store the right of the Rohingya so that they they will not need to flee from the country and also the uh, stop all the persecution against the the people, you know, so ASEAN has to uh, uh, try to stop all these things instead of the, the, they just help the humanitarian aid, they, they have to change the national policy of the Burmese government. Thanks very much, Nate. I mean, what I'd like to do now, um, thanks to all of our panelists for painting this picture for us, both of the, the Rohingya fleeing um, into Bangladesh and to other countries, but also the situation in Myanmar proper. I'd like now to turn to the audience. We've heard a lot um, in terms of statistics, in terms of the situation on the ground, um, in terms of some of the policy level changes that need to be made within Myanmar, in the region, and you know, in the, the General Assembly and the Security Council. You know, what are some of your questions for our panelists on any of those or other topics? I'm going to start here in London and then turn to our audience online. If I could ask people online to submit your questions via the website, I will get them here and, and be able to pick them up. Um, yes, please go ahead. Yes, please Thank identify you. Thank yourself. You. Yes, my um, name is Tricia Rogers. Um, I'm confused about the causes of the violence. I, it, it sounds from what you're saying as if it's a sort of um, against the human rights uh, losses that they, the Rohingya have experienced, the loss of educational health, freedom of movement, and other um, citizens' rights. But I also read that there's a lot of jihadist um, violence there, and there's some Muslim fundamentalism, and there's some of that. Is that completely wrong? That's part of what it gets, gets written in the press here. So, you know, I'm trying to understand both the causes of the violence and then how much the uh, response of the, of the Myanmar Burmese uh, army is, is a legitimate response to violence and how hugely they've gone over the top and it's, it's completely out of proportion to the levels of violence they're getting. 
Thank you. Let's take a couple of other questions and I'll come back to the panel. Um, this gentleman here in the white shirt. Hi, Alison McCready from MSF. Um, I was just wondering, with the lack of humanitarian access in Rakhine State, Northern Rakhine State, does anyone have an accurate idea of the scale of the problem there? Like, is there any idea, an accurate idea of the humanitarian uh, catastrophe that's happening in Northern Rakhine State right now? Thank you. One more question in London. Okay, nothing right now. Let's, um, let's turn back to our panelists. We have two questions. Um, one um, from Trisha on the nature of the violence um, and is there a jihadist element to it? Um, and the second one from MSF on, you know, what is the size of the problem here? Does anybody have an accurate picture of that? Um, let me start first. Um, I don't know, those of you online, um, Nay, would you like to start with that? Any yeah, other questions? Yeah. And I'll move through the panel. Okay. So, <clears throat> you know, in Burma, there are about 144 ethnic groups, but they removed uh, nine ethnic groups when they implemented the nine, uh, new citizenship law in 1982. So there is also long civil war in Burma where we have about more than 100 uh, ethnic insurgency there are the from the Kachim, from the Chim, from the Kayim, from Shan, you know, there are many. So, when uh, the media and the, some people describe about the, all those insurgency, they use the name, like, you know, the KIA, Kachim Independence Army, uh, they are, most of the members are Christian. Nobody mentioned that they are the Christian insurgency group. Okay, they just use the mention the uh, independent army. Also for the Shan and and there in Rakhine also there are two three group Arkan Army and the Arkan Liberation Party. So when they talk about the Arkan Army, nobody said you know that they are the Buddhist insurgency group. So why only for that? This Muslim, you know. Why you uh, you know Rohingya have the insurgency group? Why you guys are saying you know the uh, they are the Muslim insurgency group? So we are the same like you know the the, the Asa is same like a uh, uh, KIA. Uh, they are the very small arm group. You know they don't have they don't even have the uh, proper weapon. They are using the knife and the sword and the machete, the farmer tool. You know. So when you talk about the insurgency group, you have to call them by name. You cannot say them, the, you know, by the religion. You know, you when you talk about the, when you want to mention about the religion, you have to do the same for the other insurgency as well. You know, when you call or talk about the KIA, you have to talk, you have to say that they are the Christian insurgency group. The, when you talk about the Arkan army, you have to say Buddhist insurgency group. Why only for the, this Muslim, you know? This is religiously motivated. And also, Asa has repeatedly denied that they have no any connection with the foreign terrorist group. It is clear that they don't have any connection because I am also observing them since last year, if they have the connection with the foreign, any, any foreign group, they may have the modernized weapon. Now they are using the can which they robbed from the three Paragat Ospos uh, last year, October, and most of their members are holding the simple stick and the knife and the sword. 
and also they are not organized they don't have the uniform they have they they are not they are just like you know the one a very loose group you know they are just saying we are going to protect our own people by any mean you know whatever we had we will hold and we will fight so okay. uh, as there are many intelligence uh, reports are saying they have the connection with this group this uh, 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 here there but you know there is no any evidence their appearance you should, we should all grab their physical appearance if they have the anything any modernized weapon or anything uh, we can say they, they are getting the funding from the outside and uh, uh, some group are sending them the weapon now they don't have anything and also when they when the people describe about that religiously should not be motivated you know which is really you know, uh, should be fair to all the insurgency group in Burma. Thank you, Nate. Um, maybe turn now to um, the second question about um, the. Sorry. Oh, yes. Did you want to answer that? Yeah. Go ahead, Dennis. Yep. Just quickly, if I may, we have checked many sources. There's no confirmation of any jihadist group link to Asa. There's confirmation of leaders may be trained outside, but they are Rohingya leaders. And I think Nay's making a very good point. If there were jihadist links, they wouldn't have sticks and spears. So yes, that's a line, but we don't see any confirmation. And neither does <coughs> ICG and others who've done a lot of research into this. To MSF, just quickly. Sure. MSF, I think the short answer is pre-August, uh, there was a pretty good reading of the humanitarian needs in Rakhine State. There was access, limited access, and there were UN assessments. Since August, there has been no ability to read the new displacement. There's probably 100,000 plus, we don't know, newly displaced on top of 120,000. Maybe it's more. And the destruction is massive, including the infrastructure for support, etc. So I think the short answer is there's no, there's no access, there's no international access. This is a, a no-go black hole area, and it looks like it's going to remain like that, which makes verification of military reports very doubtful and it makes humanitarian assessments almost impossible. And finally, if I may just say, Christina, you know, I, I'll pick up the other point. The humanitarian aid into uh, 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 Rakhine, fine. Uh, I'm not, a, I'm not uh, as, as uh, hopeful as Lillian on ASEAN. The history of ASEAN's role has been very limited. They're very divided. And I'll just say the other point. The humanitarian aid question, the crisis is not in Rakhine. It's in Bangladesh. Rakhine is bad, but Bangladesh is a real crisis. And if you talk about ASEAN, that excludes Bangladesh. So we think much more, much more uh, potential is in the Bali process, wider grouping, which includes Bangladesh than ASEAN. Thanks very much, Dennis, for that. Maybe just to go to the other panelists, did anybody, um, Dirk and Lilian, anything on those two questions, on the uh, origins of the violence and on the picture in uh, Rakhine? Uh, Lilian, I see you. Yes, um, I just wanted to add, uh, you know, just to say, indeed, as Dennis mentioned, there's been extremely little access uh, within Rakhine. So actually, a, a proper assessment of the humanitarian needs has not been possible. Um, there's some emerging um, information uh, that the UN has been putting together. The UN OCHA has been trying to, um, you know, trying to gather whatever um, information it does have. And they um, did recently, just a few days ago, put out uh, their humanitarian bulletin which has some estimates on, you know, what they think are. They say they don't, they can't estimate actually the number of displaced people inside, but they do 
estimate that probably close to 94 to 95% of those people are Muslim. And that in fact, most of those people who've been displaced inside have made their way or are making their way across um, to Bangladesh. Uh, and that on top of that, there's been another, um, they say here, 26,700 people who've been evacuated. These are non-Muslims um, by the uh, government of Myanmar. Um, and uh, a total of about 6,000 of those people have returned to their villages. I think we also need to understand that there's been a, a widespread burning of villages. So, you know, there's been some discussion around, well, what do we do with these refugees in Bangladesh now? Is there a chance that they could be um, facilitated to return somehow? There are there's indications that the scale of burning down of villages has been massive. And I think that that is going to make, um, on top of all the other political um, you know, issues and, uh, um, you know, hesitations about letting these populations back in and verification of citizenship and all of that. Just the fact that you don't have actually anywhere for these people to go back to is going to be a real concern. Dirk, do you have anything to add to if that? If I may, I would just add uh, something that uh, Dennis actually uh, said in his opening uh, remarks is to confirm, because I'm representing UNHCR, that UNHCR still has two international staff in Mongo. Uh, they're not able to move, uh, but they're there along with one uh, WFP uh, international staff. Local staff are there, uh, both um, uh, ethnic, both of the bigger ethnic groups of the area, um, and uh, we are um, advocating with the authorities in, in Napidor and the Sitwe to allow. Um, for at least some limited uh, humanitarian um, uh, activities to, to resume uh, because there are needs and these needs are not covered at the moment. Um, uh, Lillian also talked about the difficulties that the uh, Red Cross movement is, is facing. So uh, we are there but not uh, really able to operate, uh, hoping that that will change. Uh, how much intelligence will come out uh, on the situation, I think, is a matter of uh, time because uh, communication is interrupted between whatever is left of the villages um, and our staff. But we will also uh, probably have uh, some information at least uh, in the coming weeks. Okay, thanks, Dirk. Um, I've got a couple of questions actually online. Um, one of them addressed to you. So while you have the floor, maybe I could address this to you. Um, this is from uh, Alex Goldsworthy, who asks um, if you, Dirk, could tell, um, tell her or him um, if the Myanmar government is imposing any movement restrictions on the refugees. Also, more generally, what rights do the Rohingya have in Bangladesh? And do refugees receive any documentation? Okay, another half an hour. All right, Dirk, we've got it short, short, Dirk. Maybe I think you Alex were asking the first question, you said Myanmar, Myanmar government, but I think you meant Bangladesh government. Um, the government's policy is that uh, refugees should uh, be in Cox's Bazaar district, uh, movements outside of Cox's Bazaar district, and in fact, in reality, outside of Ukia or, or north of Ukia, uh, Upazila, which is uh, the Upazila just uh, south of um, Cox's Bazaar Sadar, uh, which is the Cox's Bazaar city, uh, are not permitted. Uh, so the, the Cox's Bazaar, southern part of the Cox's Bazaar Peninsula is actually permitted for Rohingya to reside, uh, Rohingya refugees. Uh, that has always been more or less the case, although 
before there, there were exceptions and people could move, especially for medical treatment, if it was uh, more serious than what was uh, possible to provide in the area. Um, can you repeat the other two sub-questions to this? So uh, the other questions were about rights and documentation. In Bangladesh, do refugees have, uh, what rights do refugees have? Um, and do they receive documentation? Rights often is a question of status. Uh, the government of um, Bangladesh, unfortunately, uh, has shied away from uh, um, providing that uh, status. As you know, government of Bangladesh, or Bangladesh has never been a party of uh, state's party to the 1951 Refugee Convention. Um, so uh, in 91-92, there was a notion at least of prima facie refugees when the uh, registration, official registration of uh, uh, that influx uh, stopped in, in 92. Um, only those who had obtained that registration at the time were called refugees, everybody else not. And there's no indication that uh, uh, the government of Bangladesh would call them refugees uh, now. Uh, they're also not really calling them illegal or, or undocumented, uh, they're, they're probably more like in a, in a non-status, uh, non-recognized uh, refugee uh, uh, situation. Um, but they're uh, definitely here and hosted and uh, given basic rights. Uh, they have to be defined. There's no document which actually uh, outlines it. Uh, the guidance that we would uh, use to advocate with the government is the 1951 Convention of the Rights enshrined in this convention related to uh, the status of refugees. Documentation. Uh, pretty early in this crisis, the government of Bangladesh, actually the Prime Minister herself, uh, including in, in discussions, including technical discussions with UNHCR, has very much insisted that the full registration will be carried out. Uh, the uh, Ministry of Home Affairs has been tasked with it and has uh, finished a pilot exercise and is, is rolling out an exercise of full registration that is not up to international standards, but which uh, satisfied, satisfies very basic needs of registration and will result in an immediate issue, issuance of, a, uh, of an identity card um, uh, for uh, refugees older than uh, 10 or 12. I would have to confirm uh, that basically it's linked to a biometrics uh, capture of fingerprints and because fingerprints of less than 12-year-old or 10-year-old uh, still develop too fast to make any sense to enroll, uh, the, the issuance of documents is also limited to uh, over 10. But those things are still very much under discussion and UNHCR has been asked to, uh, to uh, guide the Minister of Home Affairs and the government of Bangladesh in, in shaping this uh, registration and the documentation. Okay, thanks, Dirk. Um, anybody else want to answer on those questions before I turn back to the floor here? Okay, gentlemen, sorry, the gentleman in the blue has a question. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm Francisco from ActionAid. It's a question on the role of civil society. Uh, I'm thinking about civil society in the region on neighboring countries in Asia and both on the humanitarian and also looking at the political solution. And a, a sub-question, uh, does the panel think framing the issues on around interfaith groups, religious groups, is it something positive or 
do we have to move away from that narrative on religious terms? So those two questions. Thank you. Okay, any, maybe we'll take one more question here in London and then go back online. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, I understand that, um, sorry, Emma from a student at the LSE. Um, I understand that uh, this crisis is coming in one of the regions of the world most affected by um, natural disaster. So I wanted to learn a little bit about um, how these responses might be taking that into account. Thanks. Okay, great, thank you. Um, would anybody like to, on the panel like to start about the role of civil society in the region? Maybe I could give that first to Lilian and then to Dennis. Um, and then we have a question about framing, framing this crisis as an interfaith one, and is that helpful? Um, Lilian, do you want to comment first on the role of civil society? Lilian, I think you're on mute. Yeah, you're right. Uh, <laughs> Don't mute. There we go. Um, I'm going to answer very quickly because I only have 2% battery left, and then I'm going to switch to another laptop and reconnect. Um, but yes, the role of civil society is very important. I think just beyond religion and interfaith, it's actually really about pluralism. Um, pluralism of uh, ethnicities, of you know, living in diverse societies, that's something which the ASEAN region suddenly has to come to terms with because that's our identity. You know, it's such a diverse region. Uh, we cannot pretend that we have um, pure uh, you know, um, populations living anywhere in this region. And I think there really does need to be a dialogue on that. The interfaith issue is important, but it's not the only angle, I think. We really do need a conversation on civil society with upholding human rights, uh, equality, um, humanitarianism, you know, really understanding um, basic equality and basic uh, human rights is really important. And of course, interfaith um, relations and understanding as part of that. Thanks, Dennis, did you want to follow up? Yeah, really on the interfaith, if I may just jump to that, which is linked. I think uh, what we've seen is uh, that the Rohingya issue is not a, was not a religious issue. I think uh, Nay will agree with me. It was essentially a racial ethnic issue. It's now got a religi religious overlay which is convenient and politically exploited. But what has happened, and our director Michael Vati Curtis has written a very interesting article on this, the, the uh, propaganda, the anti-Muslim propaganda in Myanmar, for example, has spread throughout the region to a schism between the Buddhist and Muslim communities in a way which we haven't seen before. So mass rallies of Muslims outside the embassy in Jakarta, mass rallies in Malaysia of Muslims asking for a much harder line, uh, nervous Buddhist uh, populations in, uh, in uh, Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. So this is a very serious fissure and if the propaganda is allowed to continue in a hate speech, which is, you probably know, is vehement in, in some parts of, of the country, is allowed to continue, the danger is this spreads and it'll be much more difficult to have any sort of dialogue, interfaith dialogue, which we'd all like to see. And we can't do it now. And we can't even get them in the same location at the moment because of this, this reaction. Thank you. Nay, Dirk, any um, further comments on the, this, the framing of this on as an interfaith yeah. issue. I figured you'd have yeah, something to I say have. on this, Nay. Go ahead. Yeah. Actually, if we are the Buddhists, we will not be expelled from the country because, you know, we, we have the different skin and they are saying these people are dark people and speaking the different language. We have the different culture and the different tradition. But, you know, if you see in Rakhine State, there are the Marmaji, 
and also the Dinet, uh, both ethnic group, they speak the Rohingya language, and also uh, their uh, physical appearance, they are also like us, the dark skin, and you know, uh, their tradition, culture, everything like us, and their speaking language is 100% Rohingya. But you know, the uh, only difference is they are Buddhist and uh, we are Muslim, and they are not persecuted. They are recognized, officially recognized as one of the ethnic group, and they enjoy the full citizenship. And also in the across the country, other Muslim minority are also suffering from the citizenship, and also there are many attacks against them since uh, uh, 2013. So uh, there are the many hate speech against the Muslim by the prominent monks, they, uh, they, uh, the government never take action against them. They are supporting them, you know, openly like a military chief may only met with the, these fireman monks, Wiratu, and also the NLD uh, Petrom, uh, uh, former general team who he met, and all the uh, government uh, uh, minister uh, meeting with, with, uh, with him. So that means they are supporting him, you know. So uh, actually, we are persecuted based on their religion because uh, uh, if we are the Buddhists, as I told uh, earlier, we will not be persecuted because of the, this Marmaji and Dainat. They are same like us. Okay, thank you, Dirk. Anything to add? No, I'm maybe just a, a, cor a correction or a call for for better research, maybe on some of the eth uh, other small small ethnic groups in northern Rakhine State. I'm not sure if all of them, like the Dainet and the ones that uh, uh, Nesan was just mentioning, uh, all speak Rohingya as their mother tongue or have exactly the same um, uh, 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 ethnic customs and and uh, traditions. Uh, I beg to differ. I lived there for two years and I have a different recollection. But I think that can be researched on. Uh, on uh, public encyclopedia, what these uh, groups are uh, about. I think rather than mother tongue Rohingya, they speak some Rohingya uh, language because of the proximity of their cohabitation in some parts of northern Rakhine, but they're quite distinct ethnic uh, tribes, more related to the hill tribes that also exist in, in the Chittagong hill tribes, um, uh, hill tracts of Bangladesh. Okay, thank you. And, and maybe panelists, what about um, the question from LSE about, um, you know, this is a very disaster prone area um, with recurrent floods in Bangladesh and in Myanmar um, and in the region, you know, in responding to this display, you know, this displacement crisis to this, this situation, um, are those vulnerabilities being taken into account? Um, we often see the kind of the disaster response and response to, to more um, political or, or conflict related uh, situations uh, um, a bit divorced from one another when they probably should be integrated. Um, is that is that happening? Maybe um, Dennis, Dirk, could you start and then the others can can chime in? Dirk, why don't you go ahead? Yeah, I think even even as we speak, uh, the the next cyclone could just be around the corner, and it would uh, even if it's not a very strong one would cause major damage because the makeshift shelters, uh, thousands, hundreds of uh, thousands, uh, hundreds of uh, thousands of people live in, in these makeshift shelters would cause a huge damage because they were not erected properly. They're not yet uh, very strong. Um, 
traditionally, I think over the years, when I was here in 2011-13, we had a couple of cyclones. Every year we read the news, we had uh, some uh, very severe flooding and, and uh, cyclones that damaged uh, partly uh, the existing shelters of the old refugees and the old makeshift uh, camps. And every year we have to reinvest in in re-erecting uh, uh, a lot of these shelters, replacing uh, um, uh, things that were lost in, in these disasters. In general, of course, uh, that uh, always affects both local and refugee communities uh, equally because there's, uh, a storm doesn't make a difference between uh, status of people. Um, and uh, uh, there's strong uh, relief mechanisms, let's say, government-led uh, through the Ministry of uh, Disaster Management uh, and Relief, uh, but also supported by a lot of uh, civil society in and out, uh, from inside and outside of Bangladesh, who, who are then, who, who have their standby arrangements, etc., to provide relief. Never enough, never, um, unfortunately, with enough resources to make uh, buildings, new buildings, more uh, um, resistible um, uh, and and stronger um, for such earth, uh, um, natural disasters to 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 really not to make that much damage. But that's the reality of Bangladesh. Thank you, Dirk. Um, anything to add, Dennis? Okay. Anyone else on that? All right. Maybe I'll just take before we close one more question from the online um, audience. We have an anonymous question um, from someone who asks. Human Rights Watch has just issued last night a very strong research report with clear evidence that landmines are being used by the government military forces of Myanmar. Do we have any confirmation from our panelists on the use of landmines on the border? Nay, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I think two weeks ago, I have received a video from the Tambu Lawai. The, the person who sent me the video, he diffused the landmine by himself. Then, you know, I have sent this video to a media from the uh, United States. And uh, let me tell you, friendly, I have sent to CNN. And, you know, they have checked this video with the military expert. And they have also shared me the, the rep, uh, report uh, analysis given by the military expert, it said, you know, that normally uh, the landmine, they are using the 50 gram to 100 gram explosive, but in those landmines, uh, they have used the 240 gram uh, explosive. And, you know, these are the Russian made. So uh, I have the very good evidence uh, of the this landmine that those were planted by the Burmese military because this, those, those are not uh, handmade that the expert also uh, mentioned in the uh, his analysis report those are the Russian made uh, Burmese military are using there. Dennis, go ahead. Uh, just to add that we've been told, I think I can say that, by Bangladesh officials that they have uh, good intelligence from their military about the planting of landmines uh, on the Burmese side and that uh, the question was why would they plant landmines if they want people to leave and the explanation we heard in Dhaka was they have left a 40 kilometer gap in the middle of the landmine planting 
where the people were due to go through to Bangladesh, and they've planted the mines outside of that area to prevent return. That's an interpretation, but I think there's quite a lot of evidence. You saw some on the map that we had uh, that mines, they've even been filmed in some cases uh, near the border on the, on the uh, Burma side. Yeah, and that's what Ney was saying as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Lilian, Dirk, any intelligence on landmines? Um, but certainly some anecdotes from some aid agencies who have uh, um, heard about victims and also I think on the Bangladesh side, in fact, some um, local organizations and some charities who have come across um, landmine victims as well. So I do think uh, indeed there, this, there is evidence that landmines are being used. I think the scale of it is something, of course, that needs to be um, verified further, but uh, definitely aid agencies who are treating landmine victims. Yes, there's been a death as well. Seven victims reported by the medical and one death from landmines. That's right. Okay, good. Thank you, panelists. Um, and I think we're going to end it here because it's time to wrap up. But thank you to all of you here in London for listening um, and for your good questions. Thanks to our online audience as well for your good questions and for tuning in. Um, and a big round of applause for our panelists who have taken some time out today during a very... Thanks very much for being with us. It's really hard to get a handle on this from London. So um, your insights were, have been incredibly valuable to us, um, both on the humanitarian side and the more kind of uh, thorny political issues around this crisis. So um, anyway, thank you very much. Um, copies of our report are outside. I think there's coffee also for participants in the hallway um, that are here. So thanks very much and a thoroughly enjoyable session. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.